Hello, and welcome to the What's Next podcast. My name is Liz Smith, owner of Liz Smith Law, and on this show, I share conversations to investigate building and leaving your legacy, estate planning for young families, supporting aging loved ones and parents, and other topics around aging, death, and other life transitions that will affect each of us. This is your source for hard-to-find resources in Southeast Alaska and beyond. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to get each and every episode of our show. My guest today is Ryan Beeson, Certified Public Accountant. Ryan is a tax partner at LG Rayfeld and brings over nine years of experience to clients in both the public and non-public sectors. He specializes in individual returns, partnerships, C&S corporations, tax planning, and consulting and elections. He recently became partner with a focus on tax work and consulting. Ryan graduated from Pacific University with a Bachelor of Arts degree in Business Administration Accounting. He is an active member of the American Institute of Certified Public Accountants and the Alaska Society of Certified Public Accountants. In the conversation you're about to listen to, we definitely dive deep into different tax concepts. I find that we get into the weeds. Uh, Ryan, of course, who lives and breathes this stuff every day and knows the ins and outs and complexities of tax said after we stopped recording that he kept it at a very high level and didn't get into the weeds. Um, And you will also hear that it is a conversation really geared following my interest so that I can learn from Ryan and help our, my clients, um, both planning pre-death and then also with post-death administration. So this is truly when I started this podcast, I wanted to share these conversations where I was learning, but then also let you learn as well. But this one may be a little bit in the weeds, but my hope for you is that you can listen to this conversation and have some information in the back of your mind that could be really, really helpful in the future, could save you a ton of heartache, headache, (laughs) and heartache and money in the future. It's kind of a guide that may spring, oh, I didn't realize that I need to do this for taxes. Maybe, you know, it might give you ideas of when to consider hiring someone. And at the end of the conversation, then we cover the post-death administration. That's going to apply to fewer of you who are dealing with the death of someone. But having that knowledge in the back of your mind could prove really, really helpful someday. Or of course, if you're dealing with it now, then I hope you will find this a good resource. So hang in there, bear with us, but I I think and hope that you will find some really helpful nuggets here for you in my conversation with Ryan. So welcome. Hi, and welcome to the next episode of What's Next. My guest today is Ryan Beeson. He is a CPA and partner with LG Rayfeld. Uh, Ryan is a tax partner at LG Rayfeld and brings over nine years of experience to clients in both the public and non-public sectors. He specializes in individual returns, partnerships, C&S corporations, tax planning, consulting, and elections. He recently became partner with a focus on tax work and consulting. Ryan graduated from Pacific University with a Bachelor of Arts degree in Business Administration Accounting. He is an active member of the American Institute of Certified Public Accountants and the Alaska Society of Certified Public Accountants. Welcome, Ryan. Thank you for having me. 
Thanks so much for joining. I'm really excited on very personal levels to have this conversation. I talk a lot about tax in my understanding because there are a ton of implications with what we do mostly estate planning. Uh, and so I'm excited to hear from you, learn from myself and to spread information. A lot of people, there's things that we can do in terms of ownership with property and a lot of us aren't properly informed and can make uh, negative, have negative consequences. But before we dive into tax, you are the vice president, according to your website, of the Territorial Sportsman Incorporated. What's that? Well, I actually just became president recently, so that's a little outdated. Um, but the Territorial Sportsman is a kind of outdoor conservation group. Um, the biggest thing we do is the Golden North Salmon Derby uh, every August. So that's probably what we're most known for. We, uh, Everybody goes out and fishes, and obviously the biggest fish wins the derby, but the fish are sold, and those create um, scholarships that are given to high school seniors every year. So it's a good cause um, in that. And then overall, we're just an organization that kind of promotes the outdoors for whatever it be, access to things, hunting, fishing. So it's, it's a great organization, and it's been around for a number of years. Well, that's quite the event. I imagine mm -hmm. helping to put it on is quite an ordeal. It's a lot of work. Yes. A lot, a lot of volunteer hours go into it. So it, it turns out pretty well though. Okay. Well, thanks for your mm -hmm. service. I attempt yeah. to help put on the Aukman triathlon and that alone, the, the one event is uh, a lot of work. So, yeah. And I see that you're a part of the Juno symphony foundation. Do you play an instrument? I don't play any instruments. Um, I was for a number of years on the, the main Juno symphony board, but now I'm on the, the foundation board. It's, um, a fund set aside that we have money in to help support the uh, symphony as needed. So more on the financial side of it now, but it's a good organization and I, I like helping out. Let's talk taxes. Uh, yeah. And I want to start with sort of an easy one, maybe. Mm -hmm. I mean, compared to what I want to talk to you about, I think this is on the easier realm. So okay. what is a gift tax? So a, a gift tax, um, is any time throughout the year you give over currently it's $16,000 to any, um, any person, um, you were required to file a gift tax return. It's a, it's a 709 gift tax return and it's strictly informational. There's no tax due at that time. It's, it, it goes towards your lifetime exclusion amount, um, which currently for an individual, I think it's about $12.06 million or, or for a couple, 24.12 million. Um, so it just goes towards that. And when you do pass away, um, and if your state is taxable, any previous gifts you've given kind of reduce that exemption amount. Um, and I will add on top of that, too, is what's called a gift splitting, too. So a husband and wife can each give up to 16000 So that'd be $32,000 to a family member, a friend, whoever, whoever it may be. Um, but the misconception is that there's, there's no tax due at the time the gift tax return is done, but you want to make sure that you are filing the requirements and, and doing that return if needed. Okay. So if I give 18,000 to my mother this year, I better, I need, I need personally to file that tax return. The person giving the gift has the requirement to file a gift tax return. The person receiving it has no requirements to do anything with that. And, and with that, the person receiving it, that's, there's no, it's not taxable to them at all. It's not income. It's strictly just a gift. 
and it has to be money, right? So if I paid for my mom's in assisted living, <laughs> if I paid for her assisted living, which I'm not going to do, but if I paid for a month, that would not be, or if I paid $17,000 worth, would I have to report that? It's, it still counts. Okay. Um, I, for example, we buy somebody like a vehicle or something like that. It's, it's you know, a brand new car. Um, but I will say with medical, there are certain ex- ex- exceptions that you look into that you may not have to do it. Um, and same with um, if you want to give to like a grandchild's education 529 plan, there are options there where you can kind of give up to five years of gifts at one time and, and stuff like that. Um, but for the most part, without not counting these exceptions, is that anytime you give somebody over $16,000 in value to not just cash, you're still required to do a gift tax return. Okay. So something to monitor. And I know that that amount changes that you're allowed to gift. Yeah, it was just increased. It had been, it had been at $15,000 for three years. And in 2022, it just went up to $16,000. Okay, great. Now, can we talk about capital gains tax? That's a big topic, but mm-hmm. I want to think about it really as it relates to the selling of a piece of real property. Okay. Um, so let's talk first about someone selling their primary residence and what if they might be subjected to tax. So with your primary residence, um, the IRS says if you've lived in that house, it's been your primary residence for two out of the last five years, you're able to exclude the gain up to $250,000 for an individual or $500,000 for a married couple. Um, so for, mo- for the most part, people in Juneau or, or Alaska are not getting above that $500,000 in gain. And if it's, let's say it's been a property, it's been in the family for years or generations, you can go back through and add up all of those uh, additions, improvements, remodel costs to kind of increase that basis We'll probably talk about basis a little later on, but increase the basis to reduce that gain, hopefully below the uh, exclusion amount of 500000 or 250000 Yeah. And just quickly, I, we do want to dive into basis, but that would be the basic what you paid for it. Usually. Exactly. Yep. And then we'll get into more. So, okay. So an exemption on a real, your primary residence, two of the last five years that you've lived in. I have a very uh, personal question that I've thought of that I think I know the answer, but want to confirm. If there's a married couple, one spouse dies and the survivor sells, then they, I assume they get the 250, even if it's right. I mean, the person's dead, right? It would be 250. Yeah. And that, I mean, that gets into it. Further questions too, of when the first spouse passes away with the, so one half basis step up, and stuff like that, but you are correct in general, it's limited to $250,000 in that situation. Okay, okay. Um, and then if I sell a vacation home that I had in Alaska, up in Homer, I have a vacation home and I sell that, then would, would I pay capital gains on all of the gains? Uh, yeah, you would. So obviously anything above your basis or what you call your purchase price would be capital gains. Um, so capital gains, depending on your income, there's portion taxes, 0%, 15%. And then if your income's high enough, 20%. Um, and kind of on top of that too, for like a married couple, if your income's above $250,000, 
uh, on that kind of investment income, you would have what's called net investment income tax. And essentially as an additional 3.8% tax on that capital gains. So if, if your income is high enough, you will pay the 20% capital gains plus the 3.8% in net investment income tax. So it could be as high as 23.8% tax. Um, most people probably don't hit that, but that's, you know, that's how that works. Tell me more about this investment 3.8. That's only so if your income's over a certain amount. It's a, yeah, it's abbreviated for NII net investment income. Um, and essentially this came into effect, I think when Obama was president, uh, it's a 3.8% tax on certain income, certain passive income. Once I believe it, I believe it's $200,000 for an individual or, or 250,000 for a married couple. So once your income gets above that, your certain income is subject to that 3.8% tax. So it can be, it can add up depending on if somebody has a large property they've had and, and, and sold it, it could it could be a large amount of additional tax that people are not aware of. And would that apply to investments like in the market as well? Exactly. Yep. So all of your, you know, if you have some investments outside of retirement accounts that apply to them too. Okay. All right. I think we have to dive into basis and I wish I knew like the perfect way. I mean, you probably explain this to people. So hopefully you'll help guide us in how to talk about it. Uh, dive in. If you yeah, have, it's, yeah, this is a very common question basis. It's people are, get really confused. Obviously the simplest term for basis is think of what you paid for it. I, you know, um, easy examples, you bought a stock for $100, your basis is $100. You sell that stock for $250, you have $150, $150 gain. Um, but basis um, can fluctuate over time. Um, obviously, there's step, to, step up in basis if you inherit certain things, which we'll probably get into. Um, but for a short answer, basis is what you paid for it. Plus, let's say it's um, a rental property. Your basis would be increased if you um, had like a remodel or improvement. Um, and additionally, on top of that, like with rental properties, you take like uh, depreciation expense every year. Um, and depreciation obviously is an expense on the current year, but at the same time, it reduces your basis um, each year. So obviously, every year that you take depreciation expense, that reduces your, your basis down lower and lower every year. The lower your basis is when you do sell the property, the more gain you pay on the sale. Um, okay, so let me let me pause mm -hmm. for, so you said that the basis fluctuates over time. So I'm guessing what you meant by that is because if you are depreciating the property, which I'm guessing you would only do if you're working with an accountant who's getting, they're doing it for tax advantages to the depreciation. So, yeah, depreciation is a requirement to take on like rental properties. Okay. You're not you're okay. not allowed to not take it. Essentially, it's um, when you sell it's depreciation allowed or allowable. Um, so we have clients that come in who maybe done their own return for a number of years the, the rental property, who've never depreciated their property, and technically they are supposed to have done that. And what we can do is in the current year make an election saying, "Hey, oops, we messed up." We're going to take all the catch up on depreciation, take all that depreciation in the current year to get what we should have been at. And, and typically this happens when they sell the property, they come in, they have a you know property sale transaction, they're confused. And so we essentially take all the depreciation expense that they should have taken and then pick it all back up when they sell the property as um, 
another term called depreciation recapture, which, which we can talk about if you like too. But that's it's kind of an offset, but technically um, you're supposed to take depreciation. You're not, not allowed to choose on that. Okay. And and you said just to clarify, it's only for rental properties that you have to take the depreciation. It's for any or I mean, if you have like um, other properties you own too, maybe you're not renting out, but you have a business, you know, and you're you're renting out. You have a big shop you created, and you're you're renting or you're um, using that for your business. You're depreciating that as well too. Um, so same. So if same you own theory. property and you're getting income from it, is that? You no, know, not not necessarily okay. getting income for it. Um, you could just be okay. using it for for a shop um, that you store your equipment in or whatever it may be. Um, okay. But yeah, that's how that works. Ooh, this is why we work with professionals on the details. Um, and then if someone does a remodel, you want to keep that information because, as you said, that's going to increase your basis, right? which is going yeah. to be advantageous when you sell it and what kinds of records are does the IRS want to see so what happens is on your tax return um, you have what's called a depreciation schedule and that depreciation schedule tracks all of the you know assets related to that property with initial purchase price plus you remodeled it five years later it has that the in-service date kind of the previous depreciation the current so the depreciation schedule has all of the information you need um, to calculate um, the gain. As far as records, um, it, just like any other IRS or records for the IRS, they say seven years, you should keep those. Um, so after that time, you're really no, no requirement to do that. Um, and plus you have the depreciation schedule that has that history from 20, 30 years ago, kind of carrying that forward. So that would have all the information you, you need. So if I do a remodel on a rental property this year i would report that to my accountant and they would report that right away then it's not like something you only figure out when you sell correct you you put it in service that year and start depreciating it the date it was it was completed um, so the depreciation expense would start from that date forward and, and calculate um, and then obviously that depreciation expense as we mentioned would reduce reduce your basis every year um, again, is kind of the depreciation we take on it. Okay. Anything else about the basic, basic basis part of things before we talk about uh, step being up or down? Um, well, I will mention kind of with the step, stepping back to kind of the remodel and stuff too, there's a, you, you have to distinguish between a remodel improvement and a repair. Repairs, you're able to expense in the current year and they don't get added to your appreciation schedule improvements remodels that's a long-term improvement to the property that gets depreciated and there's been a lot of articles out there and, and in all honesty you can almost justify everything as a repair um but it, it's it's difficult to, to, to kind of do certain things um and what i would just recommend is you work with your tax professional on that to determine if it is a repair or if it is an improvement because it is kind of a gray area in the tax law okay mm -hmm. Good. And so my only association with taxing basis step up or down, which usually um, is when someone dies, is that the only time that it comes into play? That's all I, I mean, that's typically where I see it. Um, I'm trying to think if I 
I mean, I we don't, don't need to, I was just, I didn't know if I was missing yeah. a whole gap. So then let's say, um, yeah, what happens when I die and leave my home to my kids and they sell it immediately in terms of how are capital gains affected? Gotcha. Uh, so as soon as somebody passes away, um, let's say their personal residence they owned, um, it goes into their estate. And on the date of death, um, the basis is stepped up to the fair market value in the date of death. So since, so if it was worth $500,000 in the date of death, that is their basis. And they go and sell it a month later for $550,000. They only have a, a $50,000 gain on the property. Um, the basis step up is huge. Um, it's a big planning opportunity, whether we get questions all the time, whether their mom or dad should sell the home or, or gift the home to the kids while they're alive. And we advise against that just because of the basis step up and the potential tax savings in the future on that. Yes, <laughs> this is a message I want to get out. At least you can do it. I think there's actually there's sometimes there are reasons to do it. It's just you want to be really aware of what you're what you're doing in terms of this tax basis question. So um, the fair market value at the date of death, how does one go about capturing what in the heck that is? Uh, typically, if there's no other information, they'll use the city assessment. Um, but I will say in recent years, especially at the housing market in Juneau, the city assessment is not the fair market value. Um, so I know a lot of times people have gone to realtors and done like a market analysis back to the date of death. They get a value of the house, which also works. Um, you could do a full blown appraisal on the property if needed. Um, but all of those work. You just need to have some sort of documentation to what what you use to come up with that gain. And I've had clients recently who are in a similar situation who have done more than, than just the assessment because the assessment is low. And obviously the lower the assessment, lower the firm, lower the, the basis, the more tax you pay on the gain. So it's, yeah. it's worth, you know, maybe paying a little bit of money to kind of get the actual fair market value in the date of death. How quickly do you recommend if someone's thinking about getting a true appraisal or, or some of the other mechanisms, how quickly do you recommend that they act after someone dies? To um, I don't think there's a huge rush because those um, appraisers or, or real estate agents who might do a market analysis can go back and kind of predate that as a market at, at that time. So they, they can go back. I've had a one a couple of years ago there, it'll go back 10 years back to when I think their mother passed away and then their father passed away more recently, but they were able to get a market value 10 years prior to kind of come up with the, a gain at that time or a, a value at that time to use um, and help kind of finish our tax return for that current year. So it's obviously the sooner the better, but I don't think there's a huge rush right away. If I own my home with my husband mm -hmm. and then I die and he sells five years later, or I don't know, whatever's the easiest example, when he goes to sell, how is basis affected if there's no community property agreement? So when the one spouse passes away, say five years previously, they get what's called a one half basis step up to fair market value. So whatever the fair market value is in the date of the first spouse's death, half of that basis gets stepped up to the fair market value. So if it was $500,000, the deceased spouse is about $250,000. The living spouse would still use one half of the original basis or the original purchase price of that. And kind of those combined together 
would create the basis and that basis would be used obviously to calculate the gain on the property. Okay. And I very explicitly said with, if we didn't own it as community property, you want to dive into community property, how that would be affected in terms of the taxation? Yeah. So community property agreements um, are something that most of our clients have never heard of, but are a potential huge tax savings. Um, I like to compare it to like an insurance policy. It may never come into play, but it's good to have it just just because you don't know what the future holds. Um, but back to your example, let's say the husband and wife did have a community property agreement in place. Um, when the first spouse passed away, instead of being a one-half basis step up, the entire property gets a step up to the fair market value. So in the example we use, instead of getting a step of $250,000, it just gets set up to $500,000. So it's potentially huge tax savings when the living spouse goes and sells that property. You know, we've had actual cases of that where there's been, I know one, one specific client of ours paid an additional $80,000 in tax just because they did not have a community property agreement in place. Um, and I, I will say this too, Alaska is one of the unique states where you can elect into a community property agreement. Most states are either community property or not community property. Um, so this is something that we kind of recommend that as people kind of update their um, their wills and the state plans is that they do go add the community property agreement um, in place. Uh, but again, you discuss that with your state attorney because there are very rare circumstances where it may not make sense. Well, and I'll just highlight too for anyone what I kind of my really brief when I talk about it is is thinking of a marriage that's very settled because there can be consequences um, if a couple were to divorce um, and some other consequences as well. But, but yeah, so said that well, it's something that you can opt into. You can decide what property is community property and it can, can be advantageous. Do you have any stories? Cause I often think of it as if there's just a primary residence, not a lot in the way of investments, and I mean, if there's not a lot of capital gain in the primary residence at that point, then I really don't see any reason um, they should do it. But I think that there might be examples that I just haven't seen or thought of. I don't know. Or do you? As far as negative consequences to do it? Not negative consequences. I guess I, you know, come from it at a is there any point in doing it? And of course, I'm thinking consciously for my clients as I invite them through it, do they need to pay? You know, There's a cost associated with having me prepare that agreement. So mm -hmm. I don't want them to spend that cost and do it if I don't see any advantage for them. Yeah, um, I mean, so I, I usually mean, say if you don't have a lot of anything that's really highly appreciated at all, if you just bought a home, then I wouldn't worry about it, but I'm wondering if what your perspective is, or if you've seen examples. I can't say, I mean, a lot of times we recommend that you go talk to an attorney about that. We're not the ones saying, yes, you need to do this. No, you don't need to do this. Um, but with that, there may, like you said, there may not be a need for it at the time, um, but I, maybe something to go good to look into it. Can every time they every five or 10 years and they do update their, their wills and stuff like that, that at least be on their radar. Cause obviously things change, 
you know, property may have come into the family, who, who knows the circumstances, but again, it may not be needed at the current time, but you know, every so often when they do review their, uh, their information, it may be good just to verify. Yeah, we should do this or yeah, we shouldn't do this. Yeah. Yeah. I would second that get things reviewed regularly. <laughs> um, good. Okay. I want to shift to an overview of what needs to be filed after someone passes away. I recognize that not that only applies to people at certain certain at certain times in their life, uh, but I think it's important to have an idea. And then also, this can be a resource if someone's like going through probate or. Um, or what it doesn't matter if you're going through probate or not certain things have to get filed anyway before we shift into that realm is there anything that you want to kind of circle back on or add with what we've been discussing so far i think we've touched on kind of all the main subjects so we can certainly uh, move on if that's all right with you yes yeah all right there are a lot of different forms that have to get filed maybe not maybe it's just that i'm not super familiar with them uh so it just seems daunting but when someone dies can you walk us through what you need to be thinking about and what the timelines are after someone dies okay um so someone passes away i'll talk about with the return due date so let's say somebody passes away july of 2022 um the estate it can be on a fiscal year end. So if they July died and passed away in July 2022, their year end is until June 2023. Um, so, and then obviously three and a half months after that is the due date of the estate return. Um, there are options and maybe some situations where you can elect a calendar year end, um, which may make sense. That's kind of a case by case basis. Um, and then as far as, you know, kind of filing requirements, you, um, so are you first... talking final, when you say the fiscal year, is that just the estate return or the last income? So return? I was talking the, the estate return, which would be a 1041, but at the same time, you still have a final 1040 return for all income earned up to the date of death, which the, the normal due dates are the same for those as well. Um, so it'd be April 15th of the following year, or if you want an extension, um, those are still due. Um, but if there is any income after the individual passed away, they call it the income in respect of decedent. Um, and if it's the minute the five requirements, if it has over $600 income, you're required to file a 1041 each year until the, if the income still being, uh, coming to the estate and until the estate is closed out, you file a 1041. So some estates can go years if there are certain situations why they can't close it um but yeah the 1041 return will report all the income after somebody's passed away um i will also mention it gets a little confusing um because the 1041 estate return is also a 706 estate return the, the 706 which 99.9 percent .9 of the population doesn't apply to is when your estate is over that ex exemption amount which is 12 million and change for an individual and 24 million and change for a married couple. So you very rarely ever see that. Um, but the 1041, that kind of reports in the income, or maybe like, let's say they have a rental property, there's rental income still coming in, that would get picked up on that 1041 uh, tax return. Okay. So 
breaking down what's kind of the more simple one because we're more we're all familiar with income tax returns. Uh, so if that individual had no income in the year preceding, then you wouldn't have to worry about the 1040, right? If they were below the filing requirements, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. which is is very common if it's just Social Security income and then maybe a few other small things that is that is common. The estate return is has to be filed regardless of any amount of income or what assets they had, correct? So the 1041 return? The 1041. Is, their filing requirement is if the estate has over $600 in income to the estate, um, they're required to file. Um, and I will say that with Alaska, unfortunately, it's very common that we have to do this because we all get the PFD. And the PFD is obviously all over $600. And a lot of times that triggers a filing requirement, unfortunately, to file a 1041 return. So it's fairly common in the state of Alaska that they will have a 1041 requirement as they have a PFD coming to them. So is it duplicative then? I might have to file a 1040 for someone that died. So it depends on when the PFD is paid. If the PFD is paid while they were still alive, obviously it goes in the 1040. The PFD was paid after they passed away, it goes in the 1041. So there, it wouldn't be picked up twice, no. Okay, okay. And so then you don't always have to file a 1041 in the event that there might not be. Correct, a lot of times there's no requirement. Um, all the, whoever might be in the state uh, transferred on death immediately. So there was nothing left over. There's no 1041 requirement to be filed. Um, but, but it's always good just to double check that and make sure there's nothing out there that you're not aware of or, or causing a filing requirement. Okay. And so if there's a rental property that is going through a probate process that could take two years before it gets retitled or sold, then all that rental income during the period would be reported on the 1041 annually. That's correct. Okay. Um, and then with that too, um, back to kind of the basis is that when the rental property gets put into the state, there's that basis to step up to fair market value. And that new fair market value is what is used to depreciate the property. Ooh, fun. So, okay. so some, something to keep in mind there. Okay. And if the property was in a revocable trust that becomes irrevocable and there's trust administration taking place, I assume it would be identical, whether it's an estate or a trust. But Correct. until it transfers to a beneficiary during that trust administration, it would be the estate return. Exactly. That's correct. Okay. And, and I will mention too, um, the estate tax brackets jump up at much lower income levels. Um, so I think it's around twelve dollars or $13,000 of, of income in the, in the, the 1041 return the, um, is the highest tax bracket. So a lot of times, um, if, if we can, we'll, we'll try to distribute those earnings out to the beneficiaries on a K-1, and they'll pay the tax on the individual level for those, um, just because the individual rates are much better than the, the, the 1041 uh, trust and estate rates. So that's something to be aware of too, um, is that the tax brackets are, are pretty high at, at low income levels. So we have the 1040, 1041, and then the 706 estate tax return mm -hmm. that you only file 
is there some guidance? Because what if someone dies and they're really close to the cutoff? Um, so, do they just trust that you're you're going to file if you're over and that you're accounting correctly? At that point, you'd probably need to go back and do some appraisals and valuations and just see where you're at. Um, but sure. I will say with that too, let's say the first spouse survived or passed away, the other spouse is still alive. There's what's called a portability election. Um, and maybe the estate may not be taxable at the current time, but if you elect that portability election, you kind of are able to use all that, that $12 million up of the one of the um, one spouses um, for when you do pass away in the future. The reason that's important is because let's say five, 10 years from, an, from now, they reduce the exemption amount from 12 million back to around 3 million, which it was not too long ago, is that you're able to use what the other spouses you know, $12 million at that time. So it's, again, it's kind of back to, you know, the insurance policy it probably won't ever come into play, but at the same time, it's good to have done that because um, you never know what the future might hold. Yeah. And I'll just say, if anyone were close, I mean, right now, like you said, the exemption amount is so high, mm-hmm. but it it will come down. It's something to monitor. And if anyone's close, you do, I would recommend see an estate planning attorney because there's ways to set it up where you don't have to worry about the portability. You can make it automatic um, and make things easier on the surviving spouse. So those are the returns. We've talked about three different tax returns when someone dies. Are there any others that might come into play? Um, So I will mention a couple other things that we mentioned it. Um, There's a form 56 that you could file. A lot of times the estate attorney does that, um, but it's just notifying the IRS of a fiduciary relationship that somebody has been assigned a personal rep to that estate. Um, and that can be submitted with tax returns or submitted separately. Um, but as a matter of course, we'd like to get that filed um, for that. Um, and I will also mention two back to the final 1040, let's say the individual passed away, there's no other spouse surviving. Um, if you have a refund coming, there's a form 1310 that you need to file with the return. Um, and depending on if, if there was a personal rep assigned to the estate, you have to paper file the entire return, unfortunately, um, in the IRS currently severely backlogged. So with those paper file returns, it could be well over a year before you ever see that money. So just, just be aware of that, that if you do a refund coming in the final 1040, you have to paper file, it's going to be a while before you see that money. And does that 1310 designate where that money would go? Basically, is that the intent or the 1310 is just kind of also letting the IRS know that the person personal rep is claiming the money on behalf of that person. Um, And and a lot of times they want you to attach the the court papers notifying you that you are the personal rep. So it is, you know, legitimate. You are who you say you are and you can act on behalf of this uh, person's estate. It's not that you have to know all of these, these concepts or how they work, but it's good to know that maybe I need to go talk to somebody at least to kind of point me in the right direction. Cause there are potential opportunities that could be missed if you, if you don't. Well, Ryan, it's been nice speaking with you. As we wrap up, I have my final question for you, but first LG Rayfeld. I think most people know them, know of LG Rayfield, but maybe not. And how can people find you? We'll link to the website. 
Yeah, so yeah. com or just Google us. All of our contact information is there. Everything about partners is there. Um, and then obviously um, our phone number, you can give us a call, set up an appointment and, or even just a, a quick phone call just to kind of touch base and see if it's something that, you know, fits your needs. It's something you may need help with or we can at least point you in the right direction to like an estate attorney or a financial advisor, you know, we kind of work together with all those people in this town because there's all, all revolves around the same thing and there's implications to each of those decisions you make. Um, so we're, we're here to help out if anybody needs any help. And I think it'd be helpful actually to get into what services you offer, because I think, well, I have some questions about working with businesses for sure, but there's doing the tax return, right? And I think we've gotten in in our conversation to recognize that there are, for some people, some nuance that you might not catch doing things on your own. Um, but what other outside of just doing a tax return and these estate returns does your office help with? Yeah, and, and what we tell clients in this situation too is it's a fairly common question is, we, we can kind of, you get what, what you put into it. So if you just strictly want tax preparation, we'll do that. But if you want that larger picture thing, we'll go through and we can kind of help with um, kind of planning, business planning. If you wanted, you know, potentially shifting from a sole proprietor LLC to an S Corp LLC, just how that works. Um, or if there's other um, issues we can help with actually Accounting, if you want us to help with the accounting of the business, we can kind of do that on a quarterly basis or even more regular or annual basis, however you want to do that. We can certainly do that as well. Um, but it's kind of, we're here to help the client. So if if they have certain questions or concerns kind of tax related, we can help with that. Um, I know a lot of questions we do get are kind of um, more of a financial advisor role. And we kind of refer those out to people here in town. Um, or same question too about kind of um, attorney questions. We always say, hey, we don't, that's kind of outside of our realm. We refer them to other people in town here. Um, but in general, besides tax, we do consulting, tax planning. Our office also does kind of GL, general ledger bookkeeping work. So we do the actual books for certain businesses in town. And then we also have an audit side of our, our um, office, which um, a lot of nonprofit governmental entities, healthcare entities are required to have annual audits, and we do those as well. Um, so we do a little bit of everything. Um, we also, as I'm thinking about it, we um, act as kind of an independent third party for a lot of um, native corporation elections. So we do that as well. Um, so it's a little bit of everything around here. Yeah, great. And I, I think that's important what you said about whatever someone asks for, because I I, when I talk to business owners, and I went through this myself, where my first accountant, I thought, well, there, there's a difference between doing the taxes and then advising on strategy. Mm-hmm. And, and that that's something that business owners listening, good to ask for. And personal as well, asking for consulting before it's... Uh, before it's January 10th <laughs> or January 1st. Yeah, before it's too late. Mm-hmm. Exactly, exactly. Well, Brian, I like to ask guests if you have a particular tip on a life transition. It could be anything associated with what we've been talking about or something completely unrelated that you would love to share. I would just say do your homework. Um, 
know, like, like we mentioned, talk to somebody who's an expert in that field or um, may give you some advice um, or just something to think about that you didn't think, you know, originally thought about in your thought process is just take the time and, and then, you know, kind of work through it before you make any big decisions would, would be my advice on that. All right. Great. Good advice. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it and sharing some really great information with myself to learn and with anyone listening. Thank you, Liz. I appreciate you having me on the show. That's all for this week. You can find show notes for this show and prior episodes and future episodes at lizsmithlaw.com. And if you're interested in scheduling a meeting with us to find out what your next step would be for your estate planning, visit us at bit.ly slash mygiftfromlsl. Again, that's bit.ly slash mygiftfromlsl. Or find the link at lizsmithlaw.com. We look forward to seeing you again right here, same place, same time, two weeks from now. Thank you so much.